The Guardians have been in serious need of an outfielder since, like, I don't know, 2018. So they did the logical thing and traveled back in time to 2018 to grab a pair of them. You're listening to the Selfie is Godcast with Zach Meisel and TJ Zupi. Fly ball, deep right field. Back is Spencer at the one and two against the wall. Subscribe to Selby is Godcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Unbelievable. Welcome, everybody, on into the Selby is Godcast. I'm TJ. That's Zach. We are brought to you in part by SeatGeek. Use the code Selby at checkout. Get $20 off your first ticket purchase over there. So much has happened since the last time we talked. I don't know where to start. You want to start with fighting on the field? Do you want to start with suspensions? Do you want to talk about blown saves? Do you want to talk about a rookie pitcher living up to their, I don't know, excitement level when they first were promoted? Or do we want to talk about the fact that you've caught like your 17th sickness in the last two weeks? Ball's in your court. Where do you want to start, Zach? It's been a rough stretch. I have no concept into whether my voice and my sinuses can hang for 45 minutes or an hour (laughs) so why don't we start with why don't we go positive first then there's been so much negative throughout the season really but especially the last couple weeks just in case my voice gives out or i have to spend 30 minutes coughing up my lungs why don't we go positive why don't we talk gavin williams oh okay well we could do that i thought for sure you were taking us in the direction of the Guardians doing more since the deadline than the Twins have. I mean, am I right? They've brought in a couple of, of outfielders here. The, the Twins could have used the right-handed hitting outfielder. Do I get in my... Do I put on the conspiracy hat? I mean, do I go full conspiracy thinking that the Guardians looked at the Twins' need for an outfielder that can hit right-handed pitching? One becomes available, and they're thinking, eh, Loriano's all right, but we're going to keep him away from the Twins. Keep him away from the Twins. Okay, maybe it went a little bit deeper than that. Okay, we could start with Gavin Williams. He's part of the five questions that I have prepared for you today. And so unlike what we typically do, how about we in two minutes into the show, we jump right into it? Okay, I don't really, I'm not used to this. I don't, not really sure what to do (laughs) with my hands here. (laughs) We were yelled at over at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Selby is Guidecast because... Coming out of the deadline, I thought you would have so many thoughts and opinions. The only thing you were ready to talk about was the Immaculate Grid. And our friend over in our Discord, our our target target field usher, is that what his his handle is in there? He was not too pleased by the fact that we started with Immaculate Grid. So I'm going to, in in honor of the target field usher, one of our our main Patreon supporters and and, uh, Discord Discorders, Let's get into the questions. Number one. Selby heads? That, why haven't we not come up with a name for our fans yet? We, we, need a, we need a name. We need a name. Think about it. Ponder it while I ask you this question. Number one. Have the last two outings for Gavin Williams completely, completely made you go all in on this dude? Yeah, I think so. I, I think you knew it was in there, right? This guy's pumping... 100, 101 and AAA, and I'd heard the same in spring training. Like, that that's... I, I can't separate him and Bybee. And I think it's because they were drafted together. They came up pretty much together. And then all spring, it was 
they were on the same schedule. So it would be these two guys are throwing on field two, and you could have Bieber throwing on field one. Everyone was looking at field two. Or you're standing at field one, but you're turning your head, and your body's facing Bieber, but your your eyes are facing Williams and Bybee. And, and they would have, like, side bets every time, like, who could throw the most first pitch uh, breaking balls for strikes, things like that. And it just had everybody in a spell. You know, it would be, there'd be like a memo going around the front office being like, hey, Williams and Bybee today, 11 a.m., like be there. And so not to say that Williams was like disappointing because he's still been pretty good, but you knew there was better stuff in there. And you know, I'm not an expert on pitching mechanics, so I wasn't sure what it would require, but he and Carl Willis have, have talked about just altering, tweaking some things in his delivery and allowing him to tap into that more. And also just the mindset, and you talked about this last week, but just throwing with conviction. And, and I thought Carl Willis put it really well last night. He said he was giving hitters too much credit. You know, you've got really good stuff. You can throw 99 with some good secondary stuff. You were a first-round pick. You were a top prospect. Like, you can come up here and succeed. You don't need to just nibble and, and be a little hesitant. So, I think you've seen the gloves come off the last two times, and and he's looked really good. And I <laughs> nice I, phrase, I just, nice phrase, dude. Gloves yeah. come off. Come on. <laughs> I think we have started to take it for granted. Just like starting pitchers aren't supposed to come up here and just look awesome right away. Obviously, that that happens in this organization. That's not the norm. But then it just makes you think, what is the ceiling for these two? Because, like, Bybee just looks like a dude. He looks like a bulldog. You know, he's the guy who, even if he doesn't have his best stuff, he's just going to fight and scream and kick for six innings. So it just has me thinking about what the rotation could be next year, what it might be, what it will be. You know, there's so many questions about Bieber, McKenzie, Quantrill. And it's like, if you can, if you can put, you know, if McKenzie's healthy and then you have Bieber or someone out, like, there's a lot of potential there, right? Like, I don't know what's going to happen with Bieber, but I'm just, the steps that Williams and Bybee have taken, and Allen will be a completely fine four or five, right? It makes you think like you could have another excellent rotation could already be here. And I think with Logan Allen, he that's the basement to me. That's that's what I'm thinking. He's established himself as just he's he's a lock in your rotation, at least for now, until something drastically changes your mind. And then you do see Bybee and Williams sort of separating themselves and having already the the type of stuff that can present itself to be more of a front of the rotation arm. Now, is either one of these guys leading the staff to begin next year? Well, first of all, is, is Shane Bieber here? <laughs> is Tristan McKenzie healthy? Two very important factors that are going to help establish whether or not somebody is, is termed the ace or starting on opening day. That aside, Williams, these last two starts, what I think is important is the the, the one previous. We saw the, the stuff get better. We saw more conviction in the fastball. We saw him throw it up higher in velocity than we had really seen a lot. And he's had some starts where he's hovered around 96 as the average, but these last two starts, like he's he's holding it well, and then when he needs to, he goes and gets it even a little bit faster. Deep into outings, he's still touching 95, 96. 
All of those things very encouraging. And as you said, part of it is indeed that he is feeling comfortable in his mechanics. As I suggested on the last show, I think it is some mindset too that he's just going to, here's the stuff, let it eat, and let's see what happens. And I think there was some, the, the outing prior, there was some just letting that happen and see, and, you know, letting the swings dictate kind of how I feel about the stuff I have on that given day. And he was still sort of touch and go, still figuring out, you know, does my stuff play? There was something about that start that we just witnessed last night against Toronto. And, and you can make the case that they're not at their full strength, whatever, still very talented club with some great hitters within it and still capable of making some of the very talented hitters look silly. Didn't it look like that dude came out with a, just a, I'm, I'm ready to shove today. I mean, from, from the first batter, he just looked like, here's, you're not going to be able to do anything with it. So here it is. Good luck with that. And I, I think that was the, that was fun to watch that the stuff improved in the previous start. And then the mindset matched the stuff in this most recent outing. And that was, that was clear to me in a lot of the swing and miss, because that's something we've been watching and like, where's, where's a lot of the strikeouts and where's. We would occasionally see the fastball get up, but where are the guys looking foolish on the swings? And and then him just looking like the dominant swing and miss pitcher that he has proven himself to be in the minor leagues. Swing and miss percentage last night, 42.5% highest of any start in his major league brief major league career. The only time he got close was at 40% back on July 8th. Every other start, it was 18.9, 21.6, 17.6, then it trended up a little bit. 23.8, 22.6, 31.25, 42.5 .5 swing and miss percentage. That to me, when I start to see guys not only swinging and missing at the stuff outside the zone, but when he's giving you a fastball within the zone at the top of the zone and guys are still missing it, that swing and the miss, swing and miss inside the zone tells me this guy's stuff is electric. And we finally saw that really the last two outings, but last night was probably the best not only we've ever seen him but maybe he's even ever seen himself at this major league level you know how you look at max exit velocity to tell you that okay it's in there for a hitter right he can hit the ball really hard and that tells me there's some sort of potential that maybe this guy hasn't tapped into yet or or we haven't seen is not apples to apples, but when someone strikes out 12 in seven innings, like that tells me that, that that's, that's in there. That pure stuff can be so filthy at times. Like Josh Tomlin was never striking out 12. Okay. So it's just a good reminder because he's had other starts by me too, where it's like, you know, they get through five or six and maybe they give up one run and it just, it doesn't look clean and it doesn't look just, I guess, dominant for lack of a better word. And for me, evaluating a rookie pitcher, like I'd rather see, obviously you'd rather see a start like last night, but I'd, I'd rather just see signs that down the line, when you're relying on this guy to throw 200 innings, he can get there and it's not just going to be laboring through all these starts. We saw that with like Danny Salazar in year two and other guys where Carlos Carrasco for years where you knew the stuff was in there, but it was just such a pain in getting it consistently. I think the thing that's encouraging with Williams too is he's almost at his innings total from last year and he's just getting going. I think 
So that's a good sign where, you know, you can keep, because they don't have a hard innings cap, but they're going to keep monitoring and trying to make smart decisions. And, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, he needs to be shut down right now. He's just finally hitting 99 and he's, he's looking as good as ever. So that's a good sign. You know, if you could push him a little bit this year, you can push him even more next season when you're going to rely on him from start to finish. So all good things. And I just, you know, if you look, we're going to look back on the season and think what were the most positive developments. I, I think Bobby and Williams is probably number one or, or right there with Josh Naylor is 1A, 1B. You want to know why this show gets so easily distracted and off the rails so quickly? It's because you say things like Josh Tomlin was never striking out 12. And instead of listening to the points that you continue to make and being able to build off of those things, what do I do? I go to Josh Tomlin's baseball <laughs> reference page. Don't tell me he struck out 12. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm doing the quickest search ever because I am the worst person in the whole world. Like as good as I am at the Savant search and being able to find all these little details within their their search page, I suck at doing the baseball reference one. I don't know why. I can never figure it out. I will never be able to figure out how to make it work. So the only way I know how to do this is to go physically search all of his game logs. And he to had my that knowledge, one start in Seattle. To my knowledge, one hitter. To my knowledge, we go back in time to June twenty eighth, twenty fourteen, where Josh Tomlin. Went nine innings, allowing one hit. Didn't walk a batter, struck out 11. Mm, but not 12. 11. So close. Would have been so fun to dunk right in your face. But no, unfortunately, Josh Tomlin. I mean, my my comparison was not apples to apples. Like, I guess... That, that's that's my point. I don't know who was in that Seattle lineup. Why was I, I, think it's, why was I looking that up? I don't know. Probably the more apt comparison is something along the lines of what you said, where the swinging and missing in the strike zone, where his stuff is just so good, you're not touching it. Tomlin, if he's going to get 11 strikeouts, it's probably, I don't know, breaking balls on the corner that they look at or they chase stuff. You know what I mean. Yeah, you want to, like, even a guy that has elite stuff could make a mistake somewhere in the in the zone but the stuff is so good or you've been so great in other areas that someone's not su- like they're surprised by this pitch right in this zone and they swing and miss you know occasionally for as as much as I want a pitcher that has a great fastball with elite ride or rise or however you want to term it that vertical movement I think it is important to occasionally drop one in the lower por- portion of the zone Get, change hitters eye levels give them something different I'm not saying live down there but throughout the course of an outing, maybe two or three fastballs find their way in the lower portion of the zone to sneak a strike in. A strike in that happened for him last night. So it's not just about like if I see a pitch, you know, up here, I'm going to assume that it is a fastball, and if I see a pitch here, I'm going to assume it's going to be a breaking ball coming down in the dirt. I want to give the hitters something different to think about. And for Williams, he can be good enough. I mean, the stuff is so electric, particularly like we've seen in these last two outings, where he can be. He doesn't have to worry. I can throw a fastball down in the zone and no one's going to crush it because it's really good and I'm changing eye levels here and I can be committed to the total game plan here. I just, I'm so excited because we've been looking for that sort of jump from him. We've all been kind of looking at each other like, 
Weren't there reports of this guy throwing 99 to 100? How was how he coming up here and only throwing 94? What are the, the guns in the, in the minors all messed up? Well, no, I don't think that's the case. There, there obviously was more at play than just assuming that he was always pitching in front of a hot gun. <laughs> I don't think that's the case. He, they pitch in more than one location down in the minor leagues. But to see it, and I, more important for us to see it, I mean, that's great for you and I to have something to talk about. But how important for him to see it, for him to know that this works. Yeah. And you get feedback from hitters. And that's that's the biggest gain you can get. Because it's when you're blowing away triple A kids or double A kids, like that's great, but you're not learning as much. When you do against major leaguers, there's nothing, you know, you you're throwing a fastball past a 19-year-old at double A. It's like, okay. Is this going to work, though, against a 26-year-old in the majors? I, I, There's no way for me to know still. You hope. You hope your stuff is good enough. When you get reactions in the majors, and then you, you have a night like last night, and then you think about your next start, well, what, what worked? What is the team I'm facing next going to... How are they going to approach me based on what I did in my previous start? And then how can I counteract how I think they're going to approach me? I think there's also part of this where... You have Bo Naylor learning more and more as well and figuring out what works and, and building that rapport. And, and he caught all these guys in, in AAA, but I think that helps too. It's just, I understand you'd rather these starts have playoff implications. You'd rather be talking about Bieber and McKenzie leading the team to another win to solidify their standing in first place. But the team is where it is. So I think over the last two months, you know, if I'm thinking about what I'm most curious to watch, most intrigued by, I think it's, I think Bybee and Williams are at the top and Allen too. It's just, I love stuff. Yeah. I mean, Logan Allen at, at times has demonstrated some of that. Like in the minor leagues before the promotion, the stuff numbers were, were actually on par with, with where Bybee was at. So, you know, I'm interested to see with, with Allen too. As his arm gets stronger, not stronger, but just more used to pitching this deep into a major league season with the type of you know pressure that you feel on every single pitch, maybe that lessens some for him to just you know I believe my my rotation spot is is safe. I don't feel like I have to throw every pitch like my whole career is on the line. All the things that a younger player has to go through. So I I think it's going to be fun to watch all of these guys because they all do something a little bit different. They're all a little, just a, a little bit different. They're not all following the same game plan here. So that means their their development is going to follow different career paths too. Are we going to spend 20 minutes on each of these five questions you have? <laughs> well, that would take us to, well, almost an hour. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. No? no? Try that math again. Oh, 20 minutes. Well, aren't people wanting shows that are longer? It's... 100 minutes? You want to do it? Do you think we can? Not with the way your voice Might is holding be up right now. my third illness of the week by then. Well, I had these questions in a specific order, and now we've thrown them into a hopper, and I'm pulling them out randomly. Not so random because it's going to end up being a pitcher. Again, here's the next question. Can Tanner Bybee actually win the Rookie of the Year? Hmm. Boy, I wish I would have known that question was coming because I could have looked up statistics and then given you an informed answer. Well, here, let me tell you that he is currently in the American League 
trailing Hunter Brown in F-War. Brown, though, that's a lot of it is determined by FIP here because he is pretty close with where Bybee is. He just has more innings. So they both have an equal FIP of 387. And for those unfamiliar, war at Fangraphs is calculated different than baseball reference. Baseball reference is tied to ERA. Fangraphs uses FIP. And so that's why you'll see some differences in a guy's war. In this case, Tanner Bybee has an earned run average that's almost a, a run lower than Hunter Brown. Yet Hunter Brown, because of more innings and a similar FIP, actually leads him 2.1 war to 1.7 war. But Bybee is second I among American think, League pitchers in war. But that's I don't only... think voters care about war for a rookie pitcher. Right. And I, I was going to get to that's only half of the equation, too, because... Oh, yeah, there's also position players. This is not just Cy Young or, in a lot of cases, MVP. We only look at the position players, one or the other. Rookie of the year, it could be both sides. And I think, as I was trying to quickly put this together last night when the question came to my mind, I think he's got a, as good of a chance as anybody on the pitching side. Like, you, you could make a case for Brown, but I think the ERA might hold him back. You can make a case for J.P. France with Houston, who's actually got a better ERA, just a worse FIP, but a very similar inning total. Um, Cano from from Baltimore is having a good relief season, so maybe maybe that plays a factor. But that, again, is only the pitching side. On the batting side, you've got Gunnar Henderson. You've got the third baseman from Texas. You've got that the second baseman, Julian, from Minnesota, who has, has come up and played extremely well. There's no guy that's running away with it. Like last year, it was pretty, pretty easy to know who the finalists were going to be. This year, it's it's a little bit more wide open, and that's what brought me to asking the question. Like, do I think Bobby could win it today? No, but by the end of the year, could he win it? I mean, a good final two months, and he could be right there. He could. Yeah, it's it's a fascinating race. So I know. So how it works is the chapter president in each city for the BBWA and that person rotates year by year. They choose who votes for what. So it's two people in each city, members of the BBWA who vote for each award. So usually it's like the traveling writers will get the the big stuff because they're there every day. They see more baseball and... Then you'll get like people who cover home games. They'll vote for certain things. Now, the the chapter president always has a decision to make because it's, do you want to give yourself the MVP or the Cy Young vote? Do you sometimes, like Paul Hoynes, a lot of times will just completely excuse himself and, and not vote for anything and hand the other stuff out. So the chapter president this year, who I'll keep from naming, um, decided that they will, they would, not completely excuse themselves, but just give themselves a vote that like should be easy, shouldn't really matter. And um, they gave themselves Rookie of the Year. And I know they're kicking themselves because it's it's an impossible race this season and you only vote for your top three, I believe. So even trying to narrow it to three seems impossible. You just named a bunch of names. Josh Young, who seemed like the favorite, is out for, I think, six weeks now after a thumb injury um so that's why this is just completely confusing because the the toughest thing for rookie of the year too is a lot of times it's not guys who have played full seasons so you're evaluating okay 
do I care about this pitcher's 130 innings? How do I compare that to a hitter who has 500 at-bats versus a hitter who maybe came up in June but raked and only has 360 at-bats? Like, it's it's really tough. So, um, yeah, I, I boy, I'm sure glad I have MVP because that one is seems pretty easy this year. Uh, <laughs> and Rookie of the Year seems like the toughest thing anyone's ever voted for. Ever. I don't know. Bybee can win it, I guess, if he's awesome for the next six weeks and isn't just completely shut down at some point. But I've no I mean, you just like France, Brown, Cano is really interesting. How about Luke Rayleigh in Tampa? Like Yeah. At least have to consider him. I mean, it's just it's it's crazy. Yeah. A lot of the the time something like the rookie race, I think you can get swept up in narrative. Um, maybe that happened a lot last year. Who's got the narrative this year? I mean, yeah, you, you could say that it, that it is young, but if he's missing for a month and a half and other people pass him, I mean, that, that happens. See, I, I was wondering, you know, does, does Henderson have, from Baltimore, does he have enough of a prospect backing that people just recognize the name and so... Well, he's having a good year. You know, he leads the the position players in war. I'll go with him, even though you know he's he's hitting two forty three, but he's got nineteen home runs. He's got a one twenty two WRC plus. Like that's as solid as anybody. And, and it, you're right. It, it's and his name's Gunner. That just kind of jumps out at you, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I don't know, like Josh. Yeah. It's between Gunner and Josh. Like Gunner sounds cooler. Uh, yeah, but. It, then weighing it against guys that don't play as much but were spectacular, like like Julian from Minnesota, and that 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 dude's rocking a 151 WRC plus right now, and has just smacked his way into the lineup. How do you take that guy out? Um, and, and for right now he doesn't have as many plate appearances, as many games as like Gunnar Henderson does. He's 40 games behind, but by the end of the year, will he have closed the gap enough? I don't know, but I think. Bybee is somewhere in the mix of like the top five, top six that you would consider vote getters right now, wouldn't you think? He's got a, as good of a chance as anybody by the end of the year to get into that race. I mean, I think there were probably like eight candidates, and I think none of them has more than a 20% chance of winning at this point. I'd be curious to see what the odds are in Vegas or on your preferred app of choice. I just... Yeah, I. Yeah, it's one of those races where, literate, where, hey, we're just gonna you got you have to let it play out. I don't know. Young certainly gets hurt because he's not gonna have a chance here to to boost his numbers. So maybe he's not the favorite now, and and I I have no idea. I, and then the other thing too is like with rookie pitchers. I guess with rookie hitters, too, you probably get tired because you're not used to 162 games. But it's not the same as a pitcher making a big innings jump. So, like, Gunnar Henderson's going to have a chance to play in some critical games down the stretch. Whereas, like, Bybee facing the Royals in mid-September with a pitch count limit of 60 isn't going to help his cause. Right. Well, that goes into the narrative. You know, does someone get a chance to build on that net narrative as the pennant race unfolds? 
Okay, 28 minutes in. We're now through two questions. Is this more in line with what you expected? Number three, they're okay with playing Cole Calhoun out of position, but like when Ahmed Rosario was here, no, not going to play him at second base. Now, it, it is interesting that Rosario goes and plays second base, right, and he makes highlights. Calhoun plays first base, and he's making cry lights because he can't scoop the ball. Like, what is the disconnect here? This is just more proof that this is a cursed season. Someone else goes and plays out of position, and they're on fire. The the Guardians do it, and see, like, they would point to this and say, this is why we didn't do this before. You all wanted all these players to play out of position. We're not going to do it. Of course, I'm being a bit facetious here, but why? why? Why are they comfortable with certain guys They'll play like David Fry will play everywhere. He'll go play right field. Never, barely ever done it before. Maybe never has done it before. But other guys, it's like, no, 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 no. This is their position. They're not going to leave it. It's precious, precious to them. Why does that happen? I can't figure it out. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to give you my opinion on this because I feel like we've been over it a million times. I do think Calhoun is here as the veteran punching bag. I think they felt they needed a veteran in the room. They had a really young team that was pretty upset about how the trade deadline unfolded. And they wanted someone to try to help hold everything together. So they needed an outfielder. And Loriano wasn't on waivers yet. Calhoun was hitting pretty well at AAA, I think. And they said, hey, he's 35 years old. He's played for a while. Let's get him in here. And... I think, hopefully this sounds how I want to sound, they don't care if he screws up because, like, Ahmed Rosario was part of the fabric of the clubhouse. He was a team leader. They He was part of the Francisco Lindor trade. He was here for two and a half years. Like, he was, he was important. Even if he, whether or not he performed the way he should have performed or whether or not he was deployed the way he should have been deployed, he was, he was an important piece in that room. And so I think they didn't want to embarrass him. They didn't want to risk embarrassing him. Um, you know, I think part of it too, like Jimenez was so good at second base. They didn't want to mess with that. He, they didn't want to switch anything in season. Rosario was fine defensively in 2022. And then shifts went away and shit hit the fan this year. And I mean, they sh- should have had the foresight there, but, whatever point is with Calhoun it's like you know it was interesting when when that happened Sunday nobody asked to speak to Cole Calhoun after like he could have left and it would have been whatever you have the right to leave you know we talked to Rokio and Calhoun stayed at his locker though and he stayed at his locker until reporters were done talking to everyone else that they were talking to and then he answered questions he didn't have to do that but that's part of why they brought him in is to help deflect, to help absorb blame, to to just be an adult in the room, really. And so I think I don't know. I mean, I, I like if it were me, I probably would have put put Arius at first base and put whoever at third, and like it could have been Tana. It could have you could have ditched the DH and put Ramirez at third, like. All the things we've said in the past about like pinch hitting for straw or, or all these things where you're trying to win the game and if things go haywire, you know, you'll deal with that later. But, you know, I think the theme of this season has been 
the one move you make or you don't make is the one that comes back to haunt you. This person playing at this position at this time is what sinks you. This reliever pitching in this situation at this time, right. and it's just their day to blow up. Like, it has been that from, not day one, but I guess, well, Karen check, day one, like literally day one. Yes, day one. Um, and so this time it's Cole Calhoun. And I think the difference is that it's just a veteran who can handle it. And I think they, I think they need that in a way. And for him, I'm sure he'll take it because he just wants to continue to taste the major leagues for as long as possible. Wants his career to, to continue. And for that to happen, he has to play into being this, this role. Now, see, I think what you're saying makes sense about having a veteran in the room amongst a, a, a sea of young prospects and kids that, and guys that have barely been up here. So it's like one of those things where when they announced that they were bringing in Cole Calhoun, I'm like, what? You're taking at-bats away from youngsters to give it to this guy. What does that make sense? And when you say about bringing in, bringing in that veteran, it's, it's like one of those things where I, I don't feel great about it, but at the same time, like if I squint my eyes and tilt my head, I kind of see it. And in the grand scheme of things that I'm really furious about or frustrated about, this is somewhere near the bottom of the list. But man, I mean, Rokia was a good defender. Rookie is a good defender, and he's played. It's not like he's never go go play third base, kid. He's played third base before. Like he's he's perfectly capable of making the throws over there across the diamond. So it's not all on Cole Calhoun. You make good throws. You you make a good play, like a good defender usually does. We're not talking about it too. So it's multifaceted here. I don't want to put it all just on Cole Calhoun. I I do think either Rokio should have made a better throw the second time because he learned from the first throw, or Calhoun yeah. stabs one of the two. The fact that right. that happened twice in a row is actually kind of remarkable. <laughs> yes, yes. You know, I go back to, remember when they were playing the Reds, and here comes Joey Votto, and they went to the wrong reliever, and they brought in Dan Otero. Remember that? Remember the whole debacle of, we went, we, we brought the wrong pitcher in. And the thing is, you know, of course, what you thought would happen, Otero gives it up to Votto, the Reds win that game. Otero, at the time, was still... a semi-capable major league pitcher. And even if a dude is crushing you, he's hitting 400 against you six times he got out. Like, that could still work out in your favor because it's baseball, and it's all about failure. That's what is mind-blowing about having two plays nearly backed up. It's like the Naylor thing. When he couldn't get the ball out of his glove, like, how does that happen? It's cursed. That's the only conclusion I can come to. The season is cursed. <laughs> so... Do you, why though? Do you think it's because we buried the Meisel Jinx last year? <laughs> Maybe. And Come now ferociously. curses are rampant? <laughs> yeah. We, you know, we put up the damn wall and then it broke. And then everything that was supposed to happen last year has rushed into this year. My only hope is that yeah. you get it all out of your system so that 2024 just is back to semi-normal. I, I would be okay oh. with normal. Not even lucky, just normal. Because what has happened this year has been insanity. Yeah. I, so with the one last point on this is when Tyler Freeman comes back, and they don't think this is going to be a super lengthy stint on the injured list, I assume Jose Tana will go back to AAA where he spent one day. What a week for him. Um, they need They need Freeman. Like He needs to be in there every day. 
and Arias should be in there still every day, and Rokio should be in there every day. So that can be first base, shortstop, third base. It could be first base, shortstop, right field. It could be shortstop, third base, right field. It could be get DH someone if you want to. Those three guys need to be in there every day because I need an answer on who's going to be the starting shortstop in 2024. Or I need to know this guy's got a head, a leg up in the race. This guy's entering spring training as the lead, the leader in the clubhouse. I need to know that yeah. before the end of the season. So yeah. that's going to eat away at bats from some people. And Calhoun's the guy it should be. Um, You know, it, it could be, it doesn't have to just be him. Like if Straw loses some at bats, oh no. Um, But you have to play. Those guys are the most important guys to me down the stretch. Like I keep playing Oscar Gonzalez every day because why not? But like, I don't know. I don't know what you have there. Keep playing Will Brennan as much as you can. Um, But like I, if there's one thing that I'm trying to learn, it is which of these three shortstops can cut it. And because you're going to need to go add an outfielder regardless. Like, even if Oscar Gonzalez hits really well for two months, you still need an outfielder. And I don't know that you can trust that. Even if Will Brennan gets hot again, do you trust him over 162? I I, I don't know. Maybe as your center fielder, but not as... You can't run back Quan Straw Brennan, I don't think. So you're going to have to get an outfielder regardless. But I think you're stuck with the internal solutions at shortstop because you've stockpiled them for years and years and years. Right. So you better find one that can play. And the way to do that is to let these guys play every single day, not to be blocked by Cole Calhoun. Are you, are you looking at my notes? Have you seen these questions in advance? Number four, forget about next year. I don't care, I don't care as much about next year. Journey into 2025, because that is when they have actually found the shortstop of the future, and that's who is playing. Next year, it could just be a rotating carnival until they actually figure out who's going to stick at that position. At least it's beginning. 2025. That'd be the 30-year anniversary of the 95 team. Oh, God. We're getting old, old, man. We are so freaking old. Tell me, who is the shortstop in 2025? I'll go Rokio. Feels like the safe bet. I just don't think Arias is ever going to hit consistently. There are times where he... You see the power, right? Those are fighting words. I mean, it's... He can catch up to a high fastball and knock it in the bleachers. But then sometimes he just looks so lost. And I feel like it's always 0-2 every time he's at the plate. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, see, I'm so ready to begin these wars. You would think I'm over the Rosario Wars, but no, I'm ready to begin the Arias Wars. Is he going to have it? Like, is he a finished product today? No. Am I going to give him to like the age of maybe 25 to know what he is closer to it? Maybe based on just a little bit here and there. I don't want to have this full conversation. I I probably agree with you that it's Rokio. But I don't... I don't for as many young shortstop as they have stockpiled, I don't know that I feel really great yet about any single one. Is that crazy? No. It's kind of alarming. I mean, 
if they aren't relying on the shortstop to be like Lindor or hit second or third, that's fine. And that's why it was critical that they got Manzardo. It's why it's critical that they get an outfielder this offseason. But like, then you're you're you need Juan Brito to be a dude. You need George Valera to be a dude. You need Chase DeLauder to be a dude down the line. So I I don't know. It's it's tough. I'm still not quite seeing the full picture when it comes to position players, what the plan is. Maybe you need Ramon Laureano to be a dude. Probably not. Okay, well, here's my final one. Is it wrong that I have really talked myself into the Laureano signing? You did the same thing in, like, 2019. Yeah, I, I did. Back when he was If he a could play center field still, guy. sure, but... What's he give? What's the best case scenario here? A lot of this is predicated on him being used correctly. I think if he is used correctly, like for the rest of this year, and I think this is a guy that you could bring back next year too. What does this team need? As a Someone platoon that, with Will Brennan, that could play the outfield that crushes lefties. What is the one thing, even through his struggles right now, this dude can, continues to do at a twenty percent better than league average clip, crush lefties. His numbers are terrible this year, but he continues to cross lefties. Throughout his career, that has continued. He's been basically 20% above league average against lefties, and throughout his career has been slightly better than average against righties. This year, clearly not, but still continues to crush lefties. If you've brought him here to be the answer in right field, then I don't like this move. But if you've brought him here to be the guy that is the, the, the platoon bat, maybe a, a, a defensive replacement in right field, more of a fourth outfield type, but plays more than that. He's more than just a guy that you stick on the bench, that he is used strategically, then I think this is a really nice pickup, a really sneaky good pickup. But if you brought him here because we liked him four years ago and we thought he had potential and we're going to continue to chase that, like the carrot that's in front of our face, no, I don't think that's going to be the guy. Not at the age that he's... Like, how often does a guy prove what he is all the way through he's to being 28, 29, 30 years old, and then finally realizes potential. Like, sure, it does happen, but we remember all of them because they're very, very rare. I think he's proven what he is. A guy that at his best maybe is average against righties and can crush the lefties. They could use that from the right side. And sure. So I'm, ho I'm hopeful that they are using him the right way, and if they are, I actually think this is a useful piece, and I kind of dig the pickup. Okay. I just... I. If he want, if you want to platoon him and Will Brennan in an outfield spot next year, fine. But you still need, you still need to acquire your best outfielder. And I don't know how you do it. Probably have to move prospects unless you trade Bieber to Baltimore, and for some reason they are willing to do what they weren't willing to do with any team two weeks ago. Um, I, I don't know. So. That's fine. Like they, they need the Geyer Rayburn role. And if, if it's a dude who's still a solid defender, that's even better. So that, that, that's fine. It's, it's, it was a no risk, medium reward type move and see what happens. But I also, 
he can't just be in the lineup every day for the next two months because you know what he is. And I still need to know more about Brennan. I, I don't, I don't know what they have there. And I'd rather see Gonzalez over the next two months because you need to be sure about your decision-making here because you kind of missed the boat on which outfielders to keep and which outfielders to move last offseason. I can't believe... So if it's up to me, it's up to me. It's Brennan and Gonzalez as your primary outfielders the next two months, and you can mix in the other two guys where it makes sense. Like maybe Loriano and Gonzalez can't coexist beyond the end of this year, and you pick whichever one you want to have moving forward. Gonzalez, though, you know, I, I I said it on our previous show that it doesn't make sense to never give him another opportunity. But yet they like he's come back up here and they've given him an opportunity, and I'm still not seeing a lot of great things so far. Not that I want him to completely change the, the way that he is as a hitter, but I understand chasing. Like Josh Naylor chases more than anybody, but Josh Naylor has learned how to crush certain things in certain zones and he's up there hunting for it like i'd see it i'm gonna crush it gonzalez still just looks like a guy that like half the time he's he's got too much of a plan the other time he's got no plan whatsoever breaking balls in the dirt that i don't care if you're eddie rosario you're not gonna hit those balls that far out of the zone you're not gonna hit a ball that lands 40 feet in front of the plate, you, you, it's not going to happen. Or the, the pitches that are way off the plate, even if you make contact with that, it's not going anywhere. Even if you are Oscar Gonzalez that has made your entire career based on that. I'm just not seeing a lot of growth there. I, I'm, I'm not saying, like, pull the carpet out from under him and he's done right now. But I feel like, I, I don't know the best way to explain it. Like, the hourglass is, is, is going dry there for him. I don't know. I just, I'm not seeing a lot of great signs that like I'm screaming about this guy needing tons and tons of opportunities. Yeah. And it, unfortunately for him, he's not the greatest defender. I know. So you really need him to hit. I know. Yeah. Like that ball that went it's over tough his too head. Because, yeah, he like yeah. barely, barely moved. And then it goes over his head. Like, oh, I do wonder. Rough. Like on the golf course, if I'm having, if I have a bad front nine, like I cannot just flush it and play really well on the back. That just doesn't happen. And maybe that says more about my mental fragility, but it's got to be tough when you've, when you've struggled all season and it's August and it's like, how do you just randomly turn it on and have confidence and a perfect approach and routine and it's got to be tough. I feel like sometimes guys just need a fresh slate of a new season. But if you're the team, can you afford to give them that opportunity and just trust that things are going to be better? No. So I, it's a tough situation. To, to me, it's more about can he justify his place on the 40-man roster by the end of the year? That's the most important thing. Like He doesn't have to answer every question about his career, what he is going to be moving forward, because even when he had success last year, these questions persisted. They didn't go away. We went into the offseason saying this guy's a risky player because all of the the red flags are there screaming that uh, don't know if this is something he can continue to replicate. And for opposing pitchers, like, why would you throw this guy anything good? Throw it a little bit off the plate, and he's either going to swing and miss 
Or if he's going to hit it, it's going to be a weak dribbler. Like some of the base hits he's had, like great, he's had some some multi-hit games. They're like bleeders through the infield. Like pitches, he's not going to do any real damage on it. To me, a hitter like that, can you do real damage or is it just going to be a bunch of, like when he gets hot, is it just finding some holes and some singles? Or can this dude crush and get tap into the power? It just We're not consistently seeing that with him. And that's a, you bring in Loriano, maybe it's just a fight to the to the death between two guys that are, their best role is going to be facing left-handed pitching. Not the Hunger Games movie I would want to see. Mm-hmm. Speaking of fights, if this would if we had recorded this yesterday, this probably would have led the show, but now maybe everyone has watched the replay 17 million times and has already gotten it out of their system, but we haven't talked about the fight. How about from your perspective, what in the heck is going through your brain as you're watching Jose Ramirez and Tim Anderson duke it out? Just one of those moments where it reinforces that you never know what you're going to see at the ballpark. And more so just, I, I mean, Jose Ramirez, like I, I wouldn't have expected him to get engaged in something like that. He usually is just like so, I don't know, professional and just like doesn't fall into that trap. Like he yaps a lot, but I don't know. He never, he just like never makes the wrong move. And I mean, he didn't, but it was just like, can't believe what I'm watching. And the way it played out, like, I was thinking, we were talking as a staff this week, like, what are the ingredients, what are the elements that make one of these melees memorable years down the road? Because it was funny that it happened, what, like, 30 years in one day after the Nolan Ryan, Robin Ventura debacle. And like, I think one of my colleagues said, well, you have to have contact. Okay. Well, we checked that off. I think it helps when you have a heel and a face, right? Like I think Tim Anderson has played the heel role here for a while now. And Jose Ramirez is always the most underrated superstar. Maybe this will help him no longer be under the radar. Um, so it just, it had a lot of those ingredients. And then I think in a day and age of social media, just the memes were unbelievable. Hammy's call was unbelievable. And so you have the elements of like 20 years ago, I 20 years from now, I think people will remember this, especially in Cleveland and Chicago. Um, so it was just, it was crazy. And it was also just like, what a freaking week for these guys. I mean, this team, like... Ugh. It's been uh, it's been a lot, and I think that was maybe a, in a weird way a fitting conclusion to a lot of frustration that had bubbled up in that clubhouse and yeah. just with the team in general. Yeah, unfortunately, it didn't translate into victories like better play. It didn't launch them into some big winning streak here. And you know, the unfortunate thing is you lose Class A for a game. Okay, well, then you're gonna. Probably lose Jose for multiple games. The three is the suspension now. He's appealing. Maybe that gets reduced by, I don't know, a game. Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. But for at least a couple of games, you're going to be without Jose Ramirez. So that's not making life any better. Still didn't make it any less entertaining to watch in the moment. Now, what has played out since? Like, initially, 
Like it was kind of funny. And I mean, it still is kind of funny to watch. But then seeing Tim Anderson like fall apart on social media, then it became like a like, is, is this dude battling some bigger demons here? And then I started to actually like feel sympathy for Tim Anderson, like going through whatever he's going through, because it's clearly bigger than just some skirmish between him and Jose Ramirez. But what I couldn't believe, like I, I go through my entire life trying to be risk averse. And the one thing I'm certainly not going to do, like I'm not going to go out and start to pick a fight with somebody like, we're going to fight now. Like, even if we're having a disagreement, like the, the odds of me saying, no, we're going to actually fight and the fists are up, not only because I think I'm going to get knocked out, but putting myself in a position where you're now not just risking the knockout, but you're also risking the fact that this is going to live on for the rest of your career. And so that is what I could never get past. Like, imagine you could potentially be a highlight just by saying, we're going to fight. You're putting a lot on your ability to at least your teammate's ability to hold that guy back so that there's nothing actually coming to blows or that you're going to be able to emerge victorious. And that's not a, a situation I want to be in. <laughs> so that That's what surprised me. Yeah. And I, I mean, I think from Ramirez's perspective too, like that's, he kind of reinforced how just the leadership. And it made me think back to like 2016 when he's around Uribe and Mike Napoli. And we've talked about, the influences those guys were on him, but it really has come full circle. Like Napoli was always actually both of them, Uribe, like imagine that sort of brawl happening in 2016, like Napoli and Uribe would have been the two guys out in front that the other team does not want to mess with. Right. And so it was just kind of cool to see Ramirez be that guy and, and take exception and stand up for Arias and Rokio or anyone else in that clubhouse. So it was, I think it was a little galvanizing for the team. Obviously it hasn't, translated on the field and it might not I mean they're just not equipped right now to to hang you look at this lineup and it feels like feels like every night they have no hits through four or five innings um even that night they had no hits going into the sixth so going into that inning one, and then Jose had big the hit. biggest hit of all so <laughs> there we go we'll see what what happens down the line maybe this is beneficial in the long run just with they finally have some a reminder that there is leadership in that clubhouse and they can band together or whatever. This type of stuff that you really only talk about when a team is either winning a lot or losing a lot. Um, and they've kind of been in the middle. So it's almost felt like they're just rudderless and they don't really have leadership. But this kind of reminded us that they do. I think you saw... I mean, even like Josh Naylor, who's got an oblique injury, like jumping in there to be the next man up. <laughs> yes, not surprising. And like looking like he was ready to just he, do whatever needed to be done. Going to risk it all to save his um, third baseman. Right. And at the end of the day, it didn't turn out, you know, little Ray Mysterio didn't need it. He delivered the, the 619 right there on the field. I, I think it was a, in both cases, like Anderson, clearly the White Sox have some bigger issues there. There's some talk about infighting there that goes back multiple years and reports of, of still infighting between your catcher, your starting catcher, and your starting shortstop. Like, that's, I don't know what's going on with the culture there. We've been talking about that for the last couple of years. We thought, like, you could bring in Tony LaRusso. Isn't that the one thing you're supposed to be able to do as a veteran manager is to get the culture where it needs to be? Well, it doesn't look like there's much accountability within the White Sox. So I think Anderson was probably like, yes, this is finally a chance for me to get out my frustration over everything that's happened here. But for why would you challenge Ramirez? 
They just traded his Tim Anderson. Or Ahmed Rosario. His best friend. You just he just saw two of his his you know his, his really good friend. They just trade another veteran away. They trade Josh Bell away. He's frustrated. Like, dude just saw his best friend get sent to LA. That he is ready to knock somebody out. Like, that's not the dude I want to fight in that given moment. Like, what do you think? That's not, that's just, it's just not smart. It's not smart. You pick the fight with the guy that you think he can beat. Not little Jose Ramirez, the little bowling ball that has clearly got some pent up frustration of his own that he's going to deliver in one swift right hand blow. Kind of silly. They're, they're almost becoming, I don't, you'll see what I mean. They're almost becoming the, the way the Browns were, where it was like, no matter how the season was going, there was enough on or off the field. There was just like always some sort of entertaining storyline, right? And I'm not saying the Guardians are anything like the Browns in terms of organizations or anything like that. But just late, like this season has gone awry, but there has constantly been stuff to talk about and shenanigans on and off the field and... I don't know. There's just been like a Browns type feel to it. Like it's, they're the least boring, (laughs) boring team ever. (sighs) Browns in such a way that the, the receiver that never drops the ball, drops the ball on third and 10 or something stupid like that. This guy never fumbles. Corey Coleman. Oh no. I don't want to start drawing these comparisons. My brain already hurts enough. I got good news for you, though. Oh, yeah? Yeah. It's only been an hour. And that's the music. You were nervous. Well, we sped through those questions. Thank goodness you brought it up, because we would have just spent 20 minutes on every question. I can't believe I haven't coughed yet. It's not over yet. Just like the Meisel Jinx, you want to get them all out right now? Oh, aren't we done? You did the SeatGeek read at the beginning. Oh, yeah, that's right. Well, we'll be back later this week over at Patreon. Patreon.com slash Selby is Godcast. Shout out to all our Selby heads. Is that going to stick? No. Mm. You keep pondering it. We'll throw it out to everybody. What do you want to be called? <laughs>